Money is going to be flowing to states from the bipartisan infrastructure law, and I imagine there will be some pressure politically to put that money to work on shovel-ready projects so that officials can see progress before the next election. But in order to create what he calls an included and inclusive America, former Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox asks, how will we determine these projects, who is making the decisions on them, and who benefits from them? Coming up next on the Movement Podcast. Let's go. The freedom of movement to access jobs, education, and social activities is a fundamental human right. But that freedom is not distributed equitably, undermining our ability to create vibrant and sustainable communities for all. Welcome to The Movement, where we talk with the leaders who are reshaping their communities with brave decisions, inspired advocacy, and a stubborn unwillingness to accept the status quo, all in an effort to inspire the next generation of leaders. Here's your host, Josh Cohen. Our guest today is Anthony Fox, who served as the mayor of Charlotte before becoming the 17th United States Secretary of Transportation in 2013. Since 2018, he's worked at Lyft, now as a senior advisor to the president and CEO. Welcome to the movement. Thank you. Good to see you, Josh. I would be remiss if I didn't also thank your former uh, Charlotte City Council and uh, former U.S. DOT colleague, David Howard, uh, who, uh, who made the introduction. So thank you, David. Let's start with your mobility story. How did you experience mobility growing up and, and how did that influence you as a public official? Well, of course, I grew up in Charlotte and... I grew up mostly in my grandparents' home. My grandmother did not have a driver's license. She uh, somehow managed to uh, to get into her senior years without a driver's license. But every Saturday, she would go downtown to Charlotte, to the Belks and to the Ivies. And I'd get on the number six bus with her um, and, you know, get from place to place. Uh, my grandfather drove, but... Um, he often bought late model cars and uh, they weren't the fanciest cars in the world, but he used that, that those cars primarily to go get groceries, um, which uh, the family always went across town to get groceries because the local grocery stores weren't to their standards. And, uh, and we were fortunate to be able to, uh, to go to the other side of town to get basic food. So, uh, those are some of the things that that I experienced growing up, and of course, the neighborhood I grew up in was uh, a small little enclave of of an area called Lincoln Heights in Northwest Charlotte, and the neighborhood was called Dalebrook, and Dalebrook was uh, was was surrounded by I eighty five and I seventy seven. So when I looked out of our front door, I saw uh, I eighty five, and if I got outside and made a right turn, I would see. Um, I would see I-77. So um, the, the major thoroughfares of the East Coast were right outside my door. Wow. And and I anybody who's ever driven to Charlotte kind of knows that that interchange there. I mean, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty famous one there where 85 and 77 come together. How how did that how did that impact you having, you know, certainly that that probably uh, those interstates probably came in in the 50s and 60s uh, there. Mm-hmm. How did that impact your ability to move around and explore your your neighborhood? Well, it it placed a huge limitation. Um, you know, the, the roads were 50% of the limitations I faced. The other 50% were my grandmother who wouldn't let me go <laughs> uh, out beyond the, uh, the, the one 
the one egress and, and, uh, air, uh, part of the, the neighborhood that we did have. Um, so, yeah, it kind of locked us in. And, um, it, you know, it wasn't anything that, that occurred to me as a kid. I mean, you know, you just you play with what you got to play with. And if you give me one street, I'll play on that street. If you give me five streets, I'll play on five. But um, it wasn't until later that I started to realize that not only in my neighborhood, but in many neighborhoods across the country, um, the story was the same. The demographic of the, the people uh, are the same. The uh, economic conditions of the areas that uh, that uh, these these types of interchanges occur in uh, are the same. It, there, were, there was a pattern to it that is pretty undeniable. I mean, it seems like there's there's been a um, more of a recognition of the huge amount of of wealth and community that was destroyed by these urban highways uh, in the in the fifties and sixties that were created. Um, it, it seems like that you know that at least has has gotten on more people's radars now. Like we're we're starting to kind of understand that a little bit better, uh, maybe than in in years past. Do you have a sense on 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 what some some tactical things we can do to help remedy some of those? you know, walls that are essentially created between communities now. Well, before we even get to that, I think, I think it's worth maybe exploring why it takes us so long to recognize these things. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't, it didn't register to me, as I said, when I was very young, but it didn't take that long for me to see it. And um, of course, when I, when I got to a position where I could, make decisions about these types of things, you know, it's, it's not a question of, um, of trying to hurt some other community the way mine had been damaged. It's more a question of um, how do you ameliorate decision-making and processes and so forth so that, um, so that we minimize impositions on any community um, mm -hmm. and that we we try as best we can not to um, not to inundate any single community with um, you know with the burdens that uh, that transportation imposes on you know on 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 somebody uh, and and having the same places you know get the air noise uh, get the highways get the incinerators get the you know um, the accumulated damage that that does. And, and frankly, um, the wealth that that transfers, you know, to, you know, other parts of our communities need those facilities to function. And so when you, when you depress someone else's value, um, by putting them in the same places, it inflates value elsewhere. You know, I, I spent a fair amount of my public life working to correct some of these problems um, at some degree of resistance, frankly, um, not only among populations that maybe didn't understand the history, but even in an envi media environment where, um, you know, I think the media played into some of the, some of the, some of the fears rather than the hopes. And it's, it's, a uh, it's, it's, it's concerning to me that it's taken us this long to even, 
acknowledge. And I, you know, you talk, you're talking to somebody who spent a fair amount of time at at the federal level trying to trying to trying to help solve these problems. So I I think my concern is we have to get away as a society from these flashpoints of like a George Floyd's death sort of prompting us to take action in ways that we should have been taking action before and and to maybe suppress the urge to um, think of the efforts that have been undertaken over years to try to solve some of these problems uh, less as controversies and more as you know how do how do we do this how do we how do how do we how do we operate as a society in in an ameliorative type of way when we don't have those flashpoints because that that's to me what it's going to take both in transportation and really in a, a range of issues for us to really get sustainable success at building the society we're capable of building so that I'm sorry to get off on that tangent but I, I no. You know, you gave no, me an opportunity th- podcast. I tell you what I think. <laughs> no, that, that's that's why that's why I'm so so grateful that you you joined me today. You know, I, I that 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 theme of of those flashpoints, I think, is is an interesting one because that certainly has come up in in prior conversations with folks. Certainly, as it relates to, for instance, bicycle safety. You know, when when there is a when there's a crash or there's a fatality, uh, you know, wh- where there's not safe bike infrastructure and and then you know cities then say all right well we need to fix that right and it's like you you have this sacrifice if you will to uh to to then make change and it's like we don't need any more sacrifices folks like not 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 people losing their lives in order to to make these changes how can we make these changes without those and 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 one theme that's kind of arisen over the course of this podcast has been how can we uh, get folks who are closest to uh, the challenges to help provide some of the solutions, right? Not mm-hmm. having a top-down political solution that's driven from from the top down, but but really coming from the the bottom up, really from from folks who are closest to those challenges, being able to say, "Well, I've got some ideas on how to solve this." Yeah, for sure. I want to chat a little bit about the historic transportation bill that's that's been. And, and maybe some of the impacts from that is certainly it's been signed into to law by President Biden. Huge influx of dollars coming to public transit, coming to trains, which uh, I think can can be transformative. I think for many communities, though, I think we're still dealing with inefficient land use that's going to impair the effectiveness of that increased bus and rail service. And so I'm I'm curious what you think about how we can tackle that, especially considering we've got climate change, which is, which is kind of yeah. bearing down our, our, our neck here a little bit. We're not prepared to solve this problem. Um, and and I, I have to be very blunt about it because sugarcoating, it doesn't help us get, get any better prepared. And maybe to, to say it a little more fully, our system has been the processes. I'm not talking about the projects, but the processes haven't changed and Congress hasn't, hasn't required them to change from the 1950s, the 1960s. So while there's a lot of money that's now flowing into the system and you have some decision makers who are thinking about our system more holistically and from a more humanistic perspective, they're not enough of them in places that matter that, that are likely to, to stem the tide. So what, what could be 
an avalanche of opportunity for us to correct and, and make better, frankly. I think consistent with what the president wants to do to make things better than they've ever been. Um, we have not taught the system to be prepared for that. So it, it's gonna, it's actually gonna take a lot of um, of effort in the system itself. You know, changing the way we do public input and making public input much more real. Maybe some places would do well to to throw out their state transportation improvement plans um, and start from a zero based perspective and say, okay, what kind of state, what kind of community do we want to be in from a not just from a roads perspective, but from a multimodal perspective to your to your question. But that type of work, if you really think about how long it has taken us to build, you know, these lists of projects under normal conditions can take years. Um, so, so how do you properly give weight to the, it's not even so much equity. It's, it's more of like the, the concept of an included, included and inclusive America. Uh, how do, how do you, how do you do that when you're dealing with like projects that were built under the old way of thinking? So, so I, I think that is a huge barrier to the kind of, you know, unmitigated success that I would love to see this president have on this. And it's just going to take a lot of, a lot of work. So I don't know if that's really answering your question, but, but I, I think the point is, is that, um, the shiny new objects are going to come one way or the other, whether they're going to be better or, or the best reflection of the kind of infrastructure we're capable of is a much harder question. It's interesting you, you mentioned about these projects and the way they're done, because what jumped out to me, I, I saw our local MPO uh, was asking for feedback on a transportation plan. And, you know, I, I am a I'm a pretty good <laughs> understanding of, of transportation writ large and so forth. And when I try to understand what's on that transportation plan website and like what they're trying to communicate and what they're asking me as a citizen to provide input on. It, it's all mm-hmm. Greek to me. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's insane. And so then you try to think about someone who has never looked at a transportation plan in their life or maybe even has a, a, a distrust of, of government. It, yeah. It's like a non-starter, right? I mean, it's like that, that to me goes back exactly what you said. It's like, we've got to rethink these systems. We have to rethink the systems. And it, it's, you know, it's, unfortunately, we're in this, we're in this like polemical kind of world where, you know, it's urban versus rural. It's you know, white against black, conservative against liberal, and it's just not that way. It's not how most people experience their everyday. Um, even people who put themselves on those on those polars don't experience their days that way. Um, so that's the challenge. The challenge, the you know, the challenge of of leadership right now, and and this will be particularly critical at the state level because much of these resources are going to flow through states, through their normal programs. Um, so much of it is trying to make the, make the system, make the process better than it's been. And, and, and frankly, it, hopefully at the level that, uh, that the people to be served by those systems are. And it's hard, you know, like going to an engineer in the transportation department and saying, you know, that project you've been working on for 12 years that's never gotten funding that all of a sudden now we could pay for. We need to rethink that project. 
Now, how do you think that engineer is going to feel about that? You know, and so that's what I'm saying is that we have like a heat seeking missile pointed at these very communities all over again with the largest investment since the 1950s. And, you know, we all want to see shovels in the ground, but we need to take a minute and make sure those shovels are being put in the right places. Yeah, that, that's a great point because you're, you're right. I mean, all, all of these systems are built to mostly build road projects, you know, some, some upkeep of them as well. And I think you probably, you know, believe too, you know, while there's uh, certainly a, a place for roads in our community, we can't build our way out of uh, the, the growth that places like Charlotte or places like Durham or places like Washington, D.C. Are, are, are facing right now. You're going to have to create more effective ways for people to move around communities that are denser or less carbon intensive. If we're going to address some of those those climate issues that I think we're dealing with on a daily basis across country. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. I, I totally agree. So I, I want to wrap up with this, and, and I think you've addressed this to some degree, but I, I want to maybe try to try to dig down a little bit deeper on this, which is what do you think is still missing um, in order to achieve the equitable, accessible, and verdant mobility future that we all deserve? And, and you know, I know you touch on this a little bit with the, with the systems, but but I'm, yeah. I'm maybe curious to me to take that next level, which is what can listeners of this podcast do to help make that future a reality? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, and, you know, I'll, 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 I'll nerd out on this a little bit, but I, I think the top line point is when people are voting for governor, not just of North Carolina, but but really any place. They're 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 voting for the chief transportation official in in their area because you know eighty I'm not joking eighty percent of the money the transportation money in this um, latest bill is flowing through states it's not mm-hmm. flowing through the U S Department of Transportation um, it's flowing through states and states will make an enormous amount of decisions about this stuff so the top line is pay careful attention to what that person what those candidates are doing and what they're talking about when it comes to this um, topic what what can be done um i've talked about public input um which is one of the most perfunctory uh exercises the government does i mean if you think about it if it were utilized properly it could be a powerful input tool but very often what it is, is a box that has to be checked. Mm. And so one has to think about how, how can we reset public input? And, you know, it's made even more difficult because the languages that people in the public use to describe the things they like and don't like about projects is very plain spoken. But they're often communicating with people who are coming from an engineering perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, I, some of my best friends are engineers, but they're not always the most like, you know, funnel open type of thinkers. And so we, we have to, um, think about, you know, putting people in our departments of transportation, federal, state, and local who, um, are good translators, um, people who maybe have more of a planning background, more of a liberal arts background, not necessarily someone that's like always trying to convert you know, ideas into very technical drawings and technical language. So, I, you know, and I, and I also think there's, there are steps that can be used. I'm really curious uh, to start thinking about how technology can 
open the aperture on uh, public input and give more people an opportunity to share their thoughts, even when they're not able to make a three o'clock PM meeting at the local government center or what have you. So um, we should be exploring those things. And then, you know, I, I, again, I think we, we probably need to, to take a, a, a blank sheet of paper to our project analysis, recognizing that, um, you know, there are politics behind projects, you know, um, sometimes a project is placed on uh, a list because it helps appease a certain constituency, whether or not it provides a travel advantage. Um, and so we should maybe think about, um, you know, taking everything off the list and building building a 21st century list from scratch. The other component to that is that we think about roads and rail, and you mentioned bicycles and other types of micromobility, including walking. Um, you know, a lot of times we've thought about these things in different silos, but what if we could create measures that would help us understand um, the viability of all of these different uh, modes of transportation and, and, and give us a give us a way of deciding which one works in what situation, or, or maybe we need a combination of them to give people more choices. I, I find that in our, you know, more densely populated urban areas, uh, we're running out of space to build more roads and yet yeah. people are still coming in and you're getting, uh, increased traffic, increased load on the, on the systems. And so in those situations, you typically do need to have two, three, four, five ways that someone can get from point A to point B. So you want to have good roads. You want to have, um, you know, transit. You want to have maybe commuter rail. Uh, maybe you want to have a, a, a trail system within a given area, uh, as well as a, a better uh, ecosystem of bike lanes. So, um, but right now, our system tends to be more one-dimensional. And so, you know, could, could you, for example, say, to states at the federal level, could you say, um, okay, we're going we're gonna to make a historic investment in transportation. We're also going to hold you to certain standards. We're going to hold you to standards on reducing climate. We're going to hold you to standards on reducing congestion. We're going to hold you to standards on ensuring that uh, you're not visiting uh, the entire weight of these projects on um, you know, low-income poor and people of color communities. Um, so, okay, we can do some of those things. And we're also not going to tell you that you have to build 80% roads. We're going to tell you that you should do the, the mix of projects that best works for your, for your state. Um, I think that would be enormously liberating, but again, we haven't taught our state departments of transportation to think that way. And, and, and so you can make the changes at the top as this bill does in terms of the level of funding, but there's an awful lot of, of, of stuff in the engine room, so to speak, that hasn't been touched in any way, shape or form. Uh, and some of it's human, some of it is, is process. Um, <clears throat> I think we should, um, actually think, you know, one of the, one of the most important things uh, one can do in life is to have a um, a moment of uh, of reconciliation, um, and and I think as we look back over 
periods of time, um, the Brooklyn neighborhood in Charlotte, which has uh, been written about a lot, uh, not nearly enough, honestly, um, and parts of, of uh, every community I know of in, in this country and in North Carolina where people have been relocated, a lot of times without adequate remuneration, uh, you know, the dignity of owning your home being taken away from you uh, without you know, adequate compensation and frankly, without having your voice at the table pre-Voting Rights Act. These are things that happened in our recent history. And um, I, I've, you know, I've written about the possibility that an organization like the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, or perhaps states themselves could undertake um, formal hearings uh, on this uh, to um, build a record um, and to open a conversation about what we should be doing in our present context to um, uh, to repair the damage that was done. Um, but you can't do it at an abstract level. You need to know who the families were. You need to know, you know, what they put into their homes when they get out of their homes when when the government told them to leave. Um, you know, what other costs were were uh, visited upon them. These are things that um, you know. These are this is this is 20th century history, and mm-hmm. there's still people around who lived it, and uh, and I think it would be illuminating for all of us to 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 uh, to understand that better. It seems like that would go a long, long way towards building the trust between communities and and their local, state, and, and federal government, which I think in some ways has been eroded to some degree. Do you think mm-hmm. that's you think that's fair? I think so. I think it would also. In our politics today, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of dog whistles and there's a lot of crying wolf, uh, or at least allegations of crying wolf. And you know, as growing up, people would talk about interactions with the police and how people were getting beat up um, by police officers. This was before cell phones. It was before last. So now, now we have like evidence that this thing that people were talking about kind of under the table, you know, in, in my growing up, um, now we see the evidence of it on camera and it becomes real. And I think in a similar way, uh, having people who experienced what I'm talking about, um, takes the, the, the sort of weightlessness out of it. You know, it becomes weighty all of a sudden it becomes more real and it becomes, harder to argue with when you hear someone who's, um, who's experienced. And then the question becomes, what do we do? And if we take that question seriously, then we start repairing, we start repairing in a real way. And I, you know, I think our politics right now is not set up for success when it comes to repairing, which is why I think it's so critical that we find specific ways like this, like I'm discussing that um, that put us in a position where we have no alternative than to see the evidence, um, to react to the evidence, and hopefully to repair. And maybe that gives us practice at doing what we need to do more generally. Hmm. I think that's a great way forward. And I would, I would love to see our local and state and, and federal officials uh, undertake that process, because I think that would go a, a long way. Because I, I think our communities need it. And uh, I think there's been too much damage done. 
And I, you know, and I hope, I hope that we can get to a point where this infrastructure law can, can have the truly transformative impact that it can. And hopefully we can address some of these systemic issues that you, that you alluded to there. Um, Anthony Fox, thank you so much for joining me today on the Movement Podcast. This has been just a, a pleasure to learn a little bit more about uh, some of the things that that you've uh, experienced and, and also learned uh, during your time in the mayor's seat in Charlotte and city council, and of course, uh, then at the USDOT. So thank you so much. Keep up the great work and uh, stay well. You too, Josh. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, head to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can find out more at transloc.com or follow Josh Cohen on Twitter at CohenJP. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of The Movement.